Welcome, everybody. I am Jesse Mogul, and thank you for joining us on the American Contingency Podcast. We are a united nationwide community of steadfast Americans ready for any challenge that comes our way. We inform, equip, and train so you can prepare, respond, and recover from any man-made or natural disaster or situation. Today, we have an excellent guest for you on the microphone. This is Derek Jones. He's our Southwest Regional Coordinator, and he also makes music and sounds for television and films. So this is gonna be an awesome conversation. Without any further ado, welcome to the show, Derek. Hey, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. It has been a uh, wonderful experience working with you, getting the sound of this show. And we just spent 20 minutes talking about how to continue getting the sound of this show even better. You know, when we talk to the guests we have on, and right now we're going through a lot of the people who are directly associated, who work with administration level jobs, or now you're a regional coordinator, work with American Contingency, there's generally a reason why they felt compelled to get associated with our organization. For you, what was it that inspired you to work with American Contingency? Uh, well, it it really started long before American Contingency was even in existence. Um, I started getting into being prepared for natural disasters when there was a crazy wildfire here in Southern California. I live in Southern California, and there was a wildfire that a huge wildfire that moved from Ventura County into LA County, the northern part of LA County where I live. And um, it came within about 100 yards of my house. And at the time, I was at work about 20 miles away. And my kids were at the house um, with their nanny. And um, we lost all cell phone communication. Uh, not even text messages were working. The freeway was shut down because the fire was hopping the freeway. So the fire department stopped the freeway. I had no way to get up there. I couldn't communicate with uh, anybody. And so their mom and I, neither one of us could get in touch with each other too. So we both started to have to make this huge loop around. We had to go out to uh, the ocean basically and drive up the coast and then come back in and follow the path of the fire. So we were kind of following behind the fire. And uh, at one point when we finally got over to the coast, we were able to get each other on the phone when we saw kind of what happened in the devastation and how we were not prepared and we didn't have a plan. That's kind of what started this whole thing and kind of started me down the rabbit hole. And then um, in the summer of 2020, it was in June and, and Mike made the get off the bench video, I believe in July. So in June, there was a BLM protest that happened in my town, which is the, it's the town of Santa Clarita. And uh, the poor girl, it, it was started by this, I think, 16 or 17 year old girl in high school. And she just kind of wanted to do something, you know, to help the cause or whatever. And then the official organization saw that she created this little tiny um, protest and they latched onto it. And so then they started to promote it and they started to um, send they, they started to plan it so that they were going to send all of their people in. And there were two other BLM riots that happened just before this one in downtown LA that everybody saw in the news. And then there was another one that happened in uh, Van Nuys right next to where I work. And that came within about a, a, 
a block from where I worked, the studio that I w- was working out of. And uh, I, you know, I just saw the devastation that it caused. I mean, it was terrible. When they started to plan this, everybody that they interviewed from the LA and the Van Nuys riot told police, independent of one another, that Santa Clarita was going to be the next big target because there are more law enforcement officers that live in Santa Clarita than in any other city yeah, in Southern California. Uh, so it has the highest uh, population of police that live here, that actually own houses here. And they wanted to burn cops' houses to the ground. And so they were going to have this huge protest and they were just planning on going into the communities and destroying. We decided because our places would have been destroyed because we're right near where the protest was going to happen. A bunch of us, there was a Facebook group called Santa Clarita Watchdogs, and it's all retired and active law enforcement, plus some other community members. We decided to just go out and try to help. The protest here, it had the largest response for National Guard in the state uh, since the riots that happened in the 60s. The Sheriff's Department deployed, I think it was like 500 or 700 officers. It was a huge protest. It started off with just local people, but then when the local one was supposed to end at around two, all of a sudden you started seeing all of these other people start showing up and they're all wearing black. And we were walking through the crowd and we were talking to them and you could tell that they weren't from our area. Like before we were walking through the crowd and talking to people and they're like, oh, so which high school here did you go to? And they're like, oh, you know, I went to Hart High School over there. And, you know, we would have these great conversations and it was very peaceful and, you know, everybody was able to voice their opinion, which, you know, free speech is really important. Um, but then as the crowd started to shift to these other people, we started asking them like, oh, so what, you know, what high school did you go to here? Or, you know, what area are you in? They're like, uh, uh, they, they had no answer. So you could tell they weren't even from this area. Well, the protest started to devolve and these people started trying to become violent. But there was about 30 of us just walking around and we had communication with the sheriff's department um, because a lot of the people in the group that I was with, uh, the Santa Clarita watchdogs, um, are active and retired law enforcement. They know a lot of the people in the sheriff's department. And so we had a signal chat going for the event. And anytime any one of us saw anything, we weren't, we weren't supposed to do anything. We weren't supposed to interact. We weren't supposed to try to try to be law enforcement. We just were the eyes and ears and we would see something and then we would type it in. And then the people within the group that had direct uh, communications with law enforcement would then tell law enforcement officers. And then within about 30 seconds, there'd be at least 10 motorcycle deputies show up. So um, as things started to evolve, two of our people saw somebody at the gas station across the street. They noticed the butt of a, of a shotgun sticking up between the seats in california it is illegal to drive around with a firearm in your car that is not locked up and secured in your trunk you can't have rifles just open in your um in your uh passenger cabin which i mean i don't necessarily agree with that but um it is a law and we saw that they were violating it so two people called it in the sheriff's 
pulled them over as they were pulling out of the gas station. And, you know, they were all dressed in black and they had like a Black Lives Matter uh, flag thing or whatever, like a sign. But in the back, there were four pipe bombs and the shotgun was completely loaded. So they had to call on the bomb squad. Um, I watched the little bomb squad with the arm come out and try to defuse the bombs. Um, while that was going on, another group that uh, I was watching started throwing frozen water bottles at vehicles to smash the windows as they drove by. And so we called called the police in on them. Within about 30 seconds, they surrounded them. And uh, they found water bottles filled with gasoline and fireworks in the kids' backpacks. So they were really trying to kind of get things going to the point where they could actually start burning stuff to the ground and start uh, a real riot. We then started to patrol the area, not just where the riot was, but we were walking around. We started noticing all these um, grocery bags, like just randomly, like we'd see like the handle of one behind a retaining wall or would see kind of one sticking up from a, a bush. So we started to look at them and we looked in and each grocery bag was filled with about 20 to 30 rocks that were between the size of like a, like a little bit bigger than a golf ball to about the size of a softball. And we started to follow them and we were just collecting them and they went into the residential neighborhoods that were right next to where the protest was starting. So obviously the pro the, the kind of protesters that wanted to be violent as they were walking in because they parked way outside of the area and then they walked in as they were walking in they were staging things to throw um as they moved into the residential neighborhoods they could go and grab these as they were walking into the residential neighborhoods and they have rocks to throw through the windows and they had the gasoline uh filled water bottles that they could then throw into the windows and then they launch a firework in and then they set the house on fire so um they had this whole system worked out. I mean, and it was amazing to watch them too, because they were very organized all of a sudden within about two minutes. And we didn't even see them bring it. Within about two minutes, there were cases of water every 15 feet and bags of different types of snacks on top of the cases of water. And it's like, where did these come from? It was just like, boom, 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 boom. Uh, like they had everything laid out. They were very organized. And then one of the other things that they would do is they would send um some of the guys out to taunt the crowd to taunt the police officers and those people would then be identified and the police would try to keep an eye on them and they know this so then what they would do is they would run behind buildings out of sight and then they would change and then they would run back out again so that they could never keep track of who the troublemakers really were and so uh, a group of us would just hang back behind the buildings and we would watch these kids come running in and it's like the kid had a red hat and a black shirt on. And all of a sudden he would throw open his backpack. He would take his hat off his shirt off. And then he would put like a white shirt on with like a blue hat. And then he would run back out. And over the police scanners, you'd hear them talking like, okay, uh, you know, there's an instigator with a red hat and a black shirt. And, you know, he's taunting the police and he's looking like he's getting pretty violent. Keep an eye on him. And then all of a sudden he's gone. But now there's a kid with a white shirt and a blue hat. And so we would then text kid in the red hat and the black shirt changed into, you know, uh, blue hat and white shirt. So we were just basically eyes and ears and it worked really, really well. There was no violence. Nobody was able to actually do any damage. Nobody was able to cause any problems. Um, 
and it was very, very successful on our part without ever having to, um, you know, kid up or carry weapons or intimidate. We just hung out. We looked like we were part of the crowd. We were talking to people as much as we could. But then whenever we'd see something with text, one of the interesting things that really tipped me off as to how organized they were was that when over the police scanner that we were listening to, um, at one point, the bomb squad didn't think they were going to be able to defuse the bombs. And they came over the open air frequency instead of the um, encrypted channels. And they said, having trouble defusing the bombs. And I, <laughs> I remember these words specifically. They said, may have to detonate in place, be ready. I was like, what does that mean? And the army Blackhawks started circling a lot lower. Uh, and I was like, this isn't good. Within 60 seconds of them making that announcement on the police frequency, the people that were kind of motivating and instigating got everybody in the crowd. And this is like, I, I think there was like seven or 800 people got them to move about a mile down the road in front of a town hall. And within literally about 60 to 90 seconds of the police saying may have to detonate in place, the entire protest was gone and they had moved. And that's when I realized like, whoa, I mean, these guys, they're very organized and they're listening to the police. Like they're listening yeah. in on what they're doing after that. And I was like, wow, what are we dealing with here? This is an organized, uh, really organized group. We need to come together as a community to protect our communities. And then Mike did the get up off the bench and you need to be prepared for disasters and protect your communities. And I was like, absolutely. You have some amazing direct experiences with now a fire. Now you've got a protest. When you talk to people in your community who maybe don't take this stuff nearly as seriously as clearly you do, how is it that you communicate with them in a way that allows them to step into some of these experiences that they may not have had, but to be able to understand them from your point of view and say, okay, I haven't had a house fire. I haven't had a community fire. I've never had anybody pr protest in my neighborhood, let alone strategically place rocks and food and bottles of gasoline and pipe bombs and motorcycles. Like there's a lot. How do you communicate with them and say, hey, this isn't necessarily what might happen in your life, but something is more than likely going to happen. Let's discuss how you can be prepared. It's tough. Uh, you know, there's different types of people. Um, you have to realize different types of people learn and experience life in different ways. Some people can learn from the experience of others. Some people can only learn if they experience it themselves. So even if somebody knows, hey, I am not prepared for this, it, depending on their, their learning type and the type of personality they have, they may be able to learn from you conveying the experience. Other people may not. They have to experience it for themselves. That's one of the reasons why I'm a big proponent of doing these things that I call field training exercises or mock natural disasters. We're about to do one coming up in our Southwest region training event that's happening um, in a little less than two weeks. Uh, it's going to be Memorial Day weekend in Spanish Fork, Utah. We're inviting everybody from the Southwest to come to it. And uh, we're going to teach six classes and then we're going to have a culminating mock natural disaster. So for some people, they have to be in that situation to really understand what works, what doesn't work, what they know, what they don't know. Um, and so we try to set these up. We've done smaller ones 
in like Southern California, where I live, we do field training exercises. Uh, and we basically come up with a situation that's like a mock natural disaster to some extent. And then we have skills that you have to do during the, the disaster and see how they work. And a lot of times people will come back and say, you know, the things that I thought were going to work didn't work. And I need to learn more. It's amazing. After we do one of these, all of a sudden, everybody starts trying to learn how to use radios. Everybody starts trying to get uh, medical training. Everybody, you know what I mean? Like everybody starts trying to like basic land navigation. So we went to an area that uh, we knew um, you could try to use your GPS to navigate around, but um, we didn't want people to use GPS. What happens if your GPS doesn't work or you're using your phone? There's very bad cell phone reception there. So your navigation in your phone didn't work that well. And so we did a search and rescue and people had maps and they had coordinates. And so they would start to try to use their phones. And then eventually it just didn't work. And they had to resort to using a map and a compass. And um, it's a valuable experience. You start to realize like there are core skills that you need to learn to be able to survive. And modern technology has kind of taken us away from those core skills. And so it's good to it's good to know them, even if you never use them on a daily basis, it's good to know how to do it. Some people can learn that from me telling my experiences. Other people just need to experience it themselves. And so that's why as the Southwest Region Coordinator, I try to set up scenarios where I can do both. There are a lot of people, when I start to talk about my experiences, they respond to it directly and, and they can kind of put themselves in that situation and they can understand like, wow, like I don't know what I would do in that situation. Other people, they need to experience it. So I try to do both as a Southwest coordinator. And I love that you're bringing in that community aspect of getting everybody within the region together to really maximize the learning experience. Because there's a lot of talk about community and about how we help with communication but then you being a regional coordinator you're actually boots on the ground putting together these events getting everybody together saying okay we're going to run through some stuff to, so you actually have some muscle memory around this because you never know what's going to come up in so many different disaster scenarios natural man-made however it works out actually a lot of the same steps come into play whether it's just trying to figure out where you're at and not having your phone available or you know knowing how to get water and food resources into your belly uh, what is it like for you to teach people and to walk people through this and i'm sure you're learning as well and sort of mike lott talked about what it's like to see a light flip on and all of a sudden they realize wow there's some things i know there's some things i don't know and i'm glad i'm in this situation learning this stuff now what's it like for you to experience that pop when somebody says says, wow, okay, this is what it's going to entail. I'm really glad I'm here. It's rewarding. I mean, I've been teaching since I was about 16 years old. So I have a lot of experience teaching. I used to teach music and then I used to teach music and production. And I mean, just recently I taught a, a class at UCLA. So I, I do a lot of teaching. Um, I wouldn't necessarily call myself a professional teacher, but I have a lot of experience teaching. So that epiphany moment, it, it's really cool. But for me, it's not just the epiphany. It's what they do afterwards. People can have the epiphany and then it fades. You know, we see that a lot with, uh, with American contingency. A natural disaster happens. Everybody has an epiphany. And then they all start trying to sign up. 
and they're really active on the website maybe for a week or two they're really active in their local group for maybe a week or two and then it starts to fizzle and it starts to fade so what i like to see more is that just that constant reiteration you know and that's kind of one of my jobs as a regional coordinator is trying to remind people bring people back in and keep them going so that they don't lose that kind of aha moment like they'll have the aha moment but then you know three days into their ham study course (laughs) they just start to lose the momentum and uh you know they're it some of the stuff is boring so they start to lose the momentum so creating these kind of real world training scenarios that people can come out it refreshes that uh if they haven't had it before it gives it to them if they had it before in real life this kind of reinvigorates it and also if they had it at the last training event and then it starts to fade it kind of reinvigorates them again in this training event and um it kind of starts to show them you know hey this is what i need to focus on and as they start to study and as they start to learn, then they can try the stuff out and come up with their own way of doing things. Everybody kind of ends up with their own way of doing things based on how, you know, how they react and their physiology. Somebody that's really big and tall and strong might be able to do something that somebody that's really small and not very strong can't do. So everybody comes up with their own ways of uh, managing and mitigating the risks around them. What do you see when you experience these people who stick with it, how are you noticing their emotional and psychological resiliency to this face of uncertainty? Well, it's funny that you bring that up. I have a quote that I keep in my email signature and I put it on a lot of the conference calls that I do with members when we do all Southwest member calls. And I'm just going to read the quote really quick. It's from a, a Roman philosopher named Seneca. He was uh, called a Stoic. So there's like, you know, there's different types of philosophy. He was a Stoic philosopher. And this is what he said. And I think it really drives home what you're asking. He says, everyone faces up more bravely to a thing for which he has long prepared himself. Sufferings even being withstood if they have been trained for in advance. Those who are unprepared, on the other hand, are panic-stricken by the most insignificant happenings. And I think that's really the importance is if you prepare for something, then when it, if and when it does actually happen, it doesn't phase you. You're, you just go into autopilot mode and you know what to do and you start to do it. A lot of people will say that with medical training. Even people who haven't had medical training in years, when they come across like a car accident, all of a sudden that training just kicks in and they just start moving through. And it's like, they're almost like they're on autopilot and um, you know, they just, okay, I have to do this. I have to do that. I have to do this. Okay. Head to toe sweep, you know, and they just start moving through the process. So um, that's what I notice is people that prepare for things tend to be a little bit more even keeled. They're not going to freak out because they understand what to do in situations and i i mean everybody in the southwest is phenomenal and we've all been practicing and working towards that so you you notice as like when new members come in they're usually um very excited and they usually have this nervous tension about them because they don't know what to do and as they start to learn 
they start to become more calm and more even keeled. And uh, I mean, it's cool to see, but it's just, it's expected, you know, as, as you start to prepare and train for every eventuality, not just the big ones. And that's one of the big things that American contingency pushes is we're not just trying to prepare for a 9.0 earthquake or a crazy wildfire. It's also the small disasters that happen in your life. You get a flat tire or you, you're broken down on the side of the road in that one stretch of road that has no cell phone reception. You know, that is a minor problem. But at that time, that's a huge issue. That's a huge disaster. Like I am broken down in the middle of nowhere. I can't get in touch with anybody. What do I do? Um, so we try to help people prepare for all sorts of stuff, not just the big ones. You know, it's great to kind of see them. And as they, as they start to acquire a lot of these skills and practice with these skills and understand how they can apply like communication skills and different ways to communicate, uh, to even a small disaster like breaking down on the side of the road, um, you just start to see this kind of more calm, even keeled demeanor. It's great. Mike Lott brought this up, our deputy director and operations manager, about how people don't know what they're capable of until they're pushed to the brink. Talking about that, we just recently had a real experience happen while we were doing our mock experience. And it was great to see. So I want to give a shout out to um, the member. His his screen name is Panda. And um, his wife's screen name, uh, forgive me, I, I, I think it's 1L. I could be wrong. But um, Panda and his wife and his uh, teenage son, they came to one of our training exercises uh, in the beginning of April. And it was a mock natural disaster. We were doing a, a fake earthquake. And we were sending people out to different areas within about a two-mile radius to handle whatever they come across. So they go out to an area, and then there's an instructor there, and then the instructor gives them the mini scenario, like, okay, there's you know three people with broken legs, or in this scenario, uh, something collapsed on a car, and somebody's bleeding from the arm, you need to tourniquet, whatever. But uh, as they were doing this, they were driving from one disaster zone to another. And they had just learned a lot of medical procedures. They learned how to do the um, march assessment, the head-to-toe um, inspection, and they they were learning how to bandage and use compression bandages and all this other stuff. As they were driving from one location to the next, they witnessed right next to them a hit-and-run accident where a car smashed into a bicyclist and threw the bicyclist off their bike. Excuse me. For those that don't know, in Los Angeles, we have over 20,000 hit and run vehicle accidents every year. And um, I don't know the exact number, but I think it's somewhere between like 900 and 2000 deaths per year from those hit and runs. Uh, and I think there's about 9000 severe injuries from those. They witnessed one right then and there. Um, and because we were doing medical training as part of this mock natural disaster, they had their medical kits right there with them. And they just hopped out of the car and they went to work on this guy and they started to do the head to toe assessment. They were checking him out. He had a lot of really bad road rash and was bleeding. Luckily nothing was bro broken, but um, he was bleeding a lot 
And so they started to apply, you know, uh, gauze with pressure and they started to bandage them up and they were using compression bandages and everything. And when the police and the EMT showed up, they looked and they said, who did this? And uh, <laughs> they were like, we, we did, we're, <laughs> we're, you know, we, we just did it. They're like, this is, this is great. Like, where did you learn how to do this? And they said, well, we're actually in the middle of a medical training right now. Like we're doing this mock natural disaster and we actually just learned how to do this. They're like, that is phenomenal. So the police, uh, and interestingly enough, shout out to Fieldcraft. Um, the police officer that was there had a Fieldcraft tourniquet holder. And so he kind of knew, uh, I guess, at least to some extent, what American contingency was. And so they said, yeah, we're part of this thing, American contingency. We're in the middle of doing a, a mock natural disaster uh, medical training. And so he took their statements and everything and said, OK, you know, this is awesome what you guys are doing. Go back and uh, get back into your training. But that's a perfect example of where the training scenario turns into the real world. Now, was it an earthquake that they witnessed? No. But it was a small natural disaster. And for the guy that got hit, it was a huge natural disaster. And they were there to respond immediately and help him. And, you know, if he had had more severe injuries, they would have been able to stabilize him until the um, EMTs and the paramedics got there. And that's that's kind of what we preach. You know, we preach be your own first responder until the first responders can show up. And it was great to see them do it. So shout out to uh, Panda and his wife and his son. Beautiful story and took the question right out of my mouth about a direct experience with how this training helps. And that's really what we're talking about here is yep. you want to be prepared for the unexpected, for the uncertain. And it's not always going to be these huge, you know, mother nature, you know, cataclysmic events. It could be somebody getting hit by a car on a, on a bicycle and you're able to go and be a part of helping that person get stabilized so they can go to the hospital and get further treatment. And for a lot of people, they'd see something like that and they'd be like, I have no idea what to do here. One of the things that we teach at the end of the medical training that we do is we talk about giving um, like a very brief report. It's it, the abbreviation is a PI report, but um, it stands for uh, problem intervention and then evaluation. Uh, so every medical department has their own forms, their own ways that they have to record stuff. Instead of having our own form, we just say, look, if, if you just use the PI report, you'll convey all the information you need, and then they can organize it however they need to uh, into their reports, and then they can move forward with it. So PI stands for problem, intervention, and then evaluation. So it's problem, what happened here? Intervention, what I did? In evaluation, how the casualties have been responding to what I did. So as soon as the, uh, and we've practiced this a bunch in our medical trainings that we've done. And it was just amazing to see. I was on autopilot. EMTs, the firefighters uh, showed up, the paramedics and EMTs and everybody were there. And the first firefighter walked up to me and he's just like, what's going on here? And I immediately was like, okay, here's the problem. These two cars crashed, blah, blah, blah. This person is having uh, chest pains and trouble breathing. This person is having, um, you know, some issues with their their eyes and, and trouble breathing from the powder of the uh, airbag, blah, blah, blah. This is what I did. And this is how they've been reacting to it. And uh, they were like, okay, great. We'll take it from here. You have this microphone. Everybody in the country, in fact, the world can hear you if they find the American Contingency Podcast on all streaming services. What is a message you want for people out there right now who have felt a connection with your stories, uh, with the journey that you've just taken us on? What is a message you'd want them to hear from you right now? 
the big message I guess that I try to convey is it's it's a process and it's a never ending process. So you're always you're always learning. You know, I talk to some people, especially in the position that I'm at, where they'll tell me, oh, yeah, 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 I've been doing disaster preparedness for 10 years. I've got it down. You know, I don't I don't really need any training. That's 100 percent. Like if you're of that mindset, you're going to get blindsided, unfortunately. So it's ever evolving. So there's always new techniques. There's always new uh, procedures. There's always new equipment. There's always a better way to do something as experience teaches us. Very few people, unless you do search and rescue and you are a firefighter, very few people have the constant experience of disasters. You know, like uh, we're not constantly in it. So doing training gives us some of that experience for training purposes. So we can test out some of the things that we think are going to work. And then over time, the trainers will show us better ways to do things. So, um, you know, CPR is a perfect example of that. Uh, um, you know, we've all learned how to, or a lot of us have learned how to do CPR over time. And every two years you have to get recertified. Why? Because they change how you do it now. Like when I originally was certified for first aid, uh, for CPR and first aid, they said, you know, you're supposed to do the 15 compressions and then the two breaths, 15 compressions, two breaths. Now they tell you don't do breaths. Like just do compressions because there's enough oxygen in the in the lungs that you can do compressions for a long time without having to give the two breaths. But it's more important to do the compressions and keep the blood pressure up and keep the blood moving through the body um, than it is to just give the two breaths. So, um, you know, you may have done it and gotten certified 10 years ago. And you're like, yeah, I know, I know, I know. 15 and then two, 15 and then two. And it's like, no, man, like, you know, over time they've realized that that doesn't help as much as just doing the compression. So constantly doing training, constantly doing uh, practice and, um, you know, uh, what would I say? Like real world training scenarios are really important, uh, whether it's self-defense, whether it's medical, whether it's uh, search and rescue, whether it's just, bugging out or coordinating and organizing with your family. I mean, there's a reason why in school, when we were kids, we would have fire drills a couple times a year, um, you know, have fire drills at home, have uh, drills. Like one of the big natural disasters that I always talk about, well, I guess you could call it a man-made disaster, but uh, is being in public and losing your kids. Right. So how many people that have kids have gone over that scenario with their kids and done like fire drills with their kids, but it's like being lost. How, like, what do you do? Where do you go? Okay, well, let's do it. Now you're still in a controlled environment, but you and your kids can then start to figure out, uh, okay, well, we're at the mall and, you know, maybe the, your mom is going to stay with you, but she's not going to help you at all. And I'm going to be the parent and we're going to get separated what do you do? Where do you go? And your mom will follow you just to make sure that nothing bad happens, but go, you know, and let's see how you can find me. Let's see how we can get in touch with each other, stuff like that. Um, that's the big thing that I always convey to people. And if, if anybody gets one thing out of my uh, interview today, it would be to just like, like Glover said, get off the bench, but I usually just say, you know, get up, get out and do stuff and practice, uh, practice makes perfect. And, um, 
the more you practice, the better you'll be prepared and you'll be able to try stuff out and you'll be surprised at some of the things that even some of the things that you've been taught may not work in real world scenarios uh, because maybe you were taught them a while ago and things have changed over time. So beautiful message, get out there, get trained, practice it because you never know whenever you might have to put that information that you've gained into actual action. A hundred percent. Derek, this has been a wonderful journey with you. I really appreciate this, all of this. I mean, you've got, walked us through so many different scenarios that you're training and, and putting yourself through this and then and trying it and training it and trying it and training it and practice, practice, practice. I mean, I like to say there's no practice. It's always just doing. So just get out there and put yourself into scenarios uh, where you actually get to take this training and putting it into action. The more you get comfortable with that, the more you'll be able to respond whenever it's time to be ready when you got to be ready. Absolutely. And if uh, members are in the Southwest, we have regional training events that are coming up Farmington or Aztec, New Mexico, August 4th through 6th. And then we're going to have our regional expo. And we'll also probably have some sort of training and mock mock natural disaster. That'll be Veterans Day weekend. And I'm not 100% sure where that's going to be yet, but that'll be Veterans Day weekend. Well, that sounds like a really great reason for anybody out there listening who is interested in the Southwest region, or if you're in a completely different region and you want to find out what trainings that they've got going on, you can go over to AmericanContingency.com, find out that information. Obviously, we would love it if you were a member, then you could actually participate in these trainings. Uh, this has been an amazing journey with you. Thank you again, Derek. It's awesome. I can't wait to hear how these trainings go in the future. No doubt we'll be posting some things on social media about those as well. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. It has been a pleasure. All right, my friends out there, we are helping you move from a place of uncertainty to some level of certainty. Derek has just given you a ton of different uncertain moments that he was able to pull some certainty into because of his training and how much he's put himself through and what he's been doing within his own region to coordinate with his chapter leaders to also go down and, and to be able to help those within their individual communities. So when you're ready to build the skills, the network and the confidence to be ready for whatever comes next. Join us at AmericanContingency.com. Until then, we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.